Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Today we begin a series that's in three parts. It's entitled Generations. And what I want to do in this series is to speak to three separate generations within this church. Um, today, and it's going to be the younger generation, however you want to define that, as junior high, high school, 20-something. If you still think that you're a young person in your 30s, that's up to you. Um, next week, I want to talk to the parents in our gathering, whether you're a parent or not, but that generation. And then the final one will be with our grandparents, whether you're a grandparent or not, is immaterial. It's of that generational group. And so today, I want to talk to you about the spirit of Rehoboam. And I want to begin with what is not my text, but um, is actually the closing passage today. I want to begin with, if you'd stand please for the reading of the Word of God for this moment. Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask that you'd be with us in this gathering. I pray, Lord, that you would meet with us here by your spirit, that you would anoint our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive, Lord God, uh, the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I found first service to be somewhat of an emotional experience, and I'm kind of wrung out, so uh, I'm going to give you what I got. All right, guys? And um, I, I hope you'll be gracious with what that is. I've been preparing this particular message for, well, since last fall. Um, I need to begin by giving you a little bit of a background, especially for those of you who may have just joined us by stream or by the gathering here um, in recent times. Um, there are certain traits that are specific to us or values as a church. One thing we've said over the years is we will discuss things vigorously, but never violently. No one has ever um, used foul language or, or physical or, or, or tones of any type in any of our meetings, leadership or general public gatherings ever. But we have vigorous conversations because we have passion what we believe in. But it's never gotten violent. Another thing that we have said is this, and this is a key issue, is that the gospel may not always be acceptable to people, but it must always be accessible. And what we mean by that is that we want to use language, we want to use words and and make things as accessible as possible. But having said that, we do understand that it's not always going to be acceptable. We know that. We know that the ways of God, um, all those things are not acceptable to our society. So we just try to shape that as as accessibly as we can be. Let me try and break this down for you a little bit. Increasingly what we see within our society um, the last number of decades are really two different types of churches oftentimes. Those that are um, really wanting to be acceptable, and, and so they will compromise the gospel. They're, in many ways, oftentimes not terribly orthodox. 
Um, but the numbers are large and the crowds are large and there's a passion involved. Um, and so they're very relevant, but they're no longer orthodox. On the other side of the coin, you have those that are very orthodox, very um, rooted in the truth and established that way, but so much so that um, you can't really get into that community or understand what's being said because the language and the phrases are rooted in so many uh, ancient phraseologies and terms. So they're, they're orthodox, but they're no longer relevant in any fashion. And there's nothing accessible to this. So here, total acceptance, here, uh, total accessibility. We strive to operate in what we've referred to as a third way. We recognize that there are aspects of the gospel that are not going to be acceptable, and we're going to take our hits on that issue because we're still going to take those stands of what those are. But we also want to use it a language or a methodology that is making it accessible for people so that can, people can understand it. Whether they accept it or not and reject it or not, that's up to them. But we try to make it in that phraseology. So that has guided us for some decades. Now, having said that, I will say this. This third way has become increasingly narrow as there are more and more churches going to the extremes of those two sides. And there's no judgment on those churches. I'm just saying this is where we stood. Another issue that's been important to us has been to be intergenerational. Now, I've used the phrase sometimes multi-generation, but intergenerational is actually a more appropriate phrase. It means an interdependency. It means where multiple generations of people intermingle or come together. Now, again, Oftentimes you'll see, whether in organizations or in churches, a tendency for it to be widely youth-driven, and there's a worship of youth within our culture today, and there's a lot of passion, a lot of drive, but oftentimes shallowness and a lot of, a lot of depth. On the other side, you have oftentimes, again, on this side of the spectrum, churches that um, are older-dominated, but it's just that. They're older-dominated. They're controlled, and frankly, increasingly dying out as time goes along. So our goal is to be intergenerational. We believe this to be a biblical element, that we're to respect each other's generations, and we are to draw from different generational perspectives, that we live within this tension of, of different generations and this tension of, of relevancy and orthodoxy and try to walk this as, as closely as we can. And it is challenging. There's no question about that. I, I will say that. Now, to that end... We recently, some of you may have noticed or not noticed, especially if you're new, you wouldn't have noticed, the sticks and the stone that we have over here that has in the past represented families or us um, in relationship with Christ, with him in the center. Um, you may have noticed that they have recently been marked or painted. Now, if you can't get a good glimpse, they had told me they can shift the lighting to show you, but some of you know my affection for flashlights, and this is one of my favorite. This one has 20,000 lumens, I think it is, and uh, um, I just like the way it works. And so, I mean, it really is a good light, you know? I mean, you got to tell me. I mean, this is, this is one. Hold it long enough, it will burn you, okay? Um, but if you notice on this, uh, what we've done is we've, our artists have put in three different shading of color, bronze, gold, silver representing three generations and all intermingled, but all focused ultimately upon Christ, all driving in towards that goal. That represents us as a church in a nutshell. And so in part to process this, this is part of this conversation today. There is a fixation upon our culture and increasingly in churches even upon youth. One person who um, derided this a bit uh, in a New York Times article back in 2014, it was actress Frances McDormand from Fargo and a number of other movies, she said. She spoke out against what she called Hollywood's 
and America's, quote, perverse fixation on youth, McDormand said. Quote, there's no desire to be an adult. Adult is not a goal. It's not seen as a gift. Something happened culturally. No one is supposed to age past 45. In terms of dress, cosmetics, and attitudes, everybody dresses like a teenager. Everybody dyes their hair. Everybody's concerned about a smooth face. This is that worship of youth. Now, again, youth is to be valued. Youth is to be treasured. But let's face it, we all move out of that at some point in our life. That is, that is the starting point, not the finish of life. Now, for young people growing up within the church or those who have come to faith in Christ, research has shown that there are three key relationships that young people need in order to maintain their faith into adulthood. First, the young person's parents, if Christians, practicing the faith in the home and in daily life, not just in a public church setting, that is the first important relationship that needs to be considered. The second thing is that the young person had at least one significant adult, mentor, or friend other than the parents who practiced the faith seriously. Thirdly, the young person had at least one significant spiritual experience before the age of 17. In other words, teenagers are most likely to retain their Christian faith into adulthood if they had a meaningful, healthy relationship with their parents, a faithful Christian mentor outside of the home uh, and with the family, and then with God himself. Those were the things that establish depth. Now, having said this as a baseline, what I want to share with you today is in regards to two kings. And I want to talk to you about the first spirit. There'll be three during this, this uh, um, series. Now, before I dive into that, though, too far, I, I want to touch upon this mentoring element. Some of you have noted over the years how history often creeps into the messages that I share, that it's part of who I am a lot of times. And there are reasons for that. One of it, and the most, I think, important one, is that the Bible is rooted in history. It's soaked in history. So that's part of, I think, which initially stirred. But there are two other people that you can blame in the process of this. One of those is a professor named Larry Nelson. Larry Nelson was my professor in um, uh, college. Larry was brilliant. He had uh, an ability to tell stories. He was passionate about history. Larry made history fun. He had a slogan um, he'd write on the board whenever he'd start with the class, and every morning it was G-H-I-I-H. Sometimes he wrote out the whole thing. Good history is intellectual history. And what he meant by that, it wasn't just a matter of remembering dates and dry things, but what drove those people? What shaped the events? What were the great ideas or thoughts behind that? Great history is intellectual history. In fact, in this picture, you can see in the backboard there, he wrote it down again. Another thing he would do is when he walked into his classes, and I don't know how he did this. He was the most optimistic, upbeat person I have ever known. Whenever he would enter the classroom, he would always say every morning, hello and welcome. It's another beautiful day here at Evangel University. And we'd all sit here and go, are you kidding me? His tests were incredible. They were single question essay tests. I know people that fainted upon just opening the book. Compare and contrast American economic policy from 1890 to 1950. 
They were brutal. But he drew the best out in us. Larry was also an amazing Christian and spoke often of his faith. And he shaped me. Before Larry, though, the one who really launched the whole thing that you really want to blame, it'd be Bessie Stram. Bessie Stram, when I first knew her, I realize now was a young 36-year-old teacher, Flint Northern High School. I didn't know it at the time. Since then, I've come to realize she was married to a PhD, a doctor in mathematics who had graduated from University of Michigan. She got her master's at University of Michigan, and I found out later that she was a deeply devout Christian staying in the same church for over 56 years. I found all this out when I went to look her up again recently and found out that last fall she passed away. Bessie was amazing. She would get everything. She'd just sit there and go, so how do you do that? And where do we draw this out? Now, have you thought about that? I want to understand what you're saying, young man. She was amazing. Years ago, I went back to Flint Northern. It would be decades now. I looked her up. She was in administration at this point in time as an assistant principal. And I said, do you remember? And she says, oh yeah, I remember you. You were the weird kid. <laughs> she did not say that. And I told her, I said, Ms. Dram, you shaped so much of my life. And I just want to thank you for that. I think it's important, young people, or any of us, that we have a, a tone of gratitude. It's a character trait to thank people who have helped you in life, even those that you disagree with at times. Giving honor is an appropriate thing to do. Um, to that end, I want to take a step aside for a moment. I'm going to ask any of our teachers, you guys have had a really sucky two years, you know that? I'm going to ask any of our teachers, former teachers or current, would you please stand? And I know a lot of you are here. Stand. And we want to honor you for just a moment. Recognize the effort you guys have today. Thank you. You guys have put up with a lot, including us, and, um, and we appreciate that. Now, I will confess to you, neither Bessie nor Larry we didn't have the kind of personal relationship that I can claim them as a mentor. I, 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 they influenced me dramatically. But there was a distance in that. And so uh, sometimes when we're looking for people to influence us, and the term mentor, just as a backup for a moment, we find in Greek mythology and Odysseus or Ulysses as he goes on his quest, leaves behind his young son Telemachus and his older um, servant Mentor, and he asks Mentor to watch over the young man and develop him as a young man, and Mentor, to be honest, completely blows the assignment. Um, but Athena, the goddess of wisdom, um, appears as mentor to Telemachus in a few things, and she actually shapes and guides him to become a strong young man. And it's from there that we draw the term mentor. And you're not always going to have, perhaps, a mentor or someone who acknowledges you and walks alongside you. You can still draw from their experience of these older individuals. 
And I'm certainly not recommending Athena uh, as a goddess or a spirit for you to indulge in. But I do believe that God himself can be that mentor to you, that he is the one that you should find first and foremost and turn to in your life that will draw you along and shape who you're going to be and who you should be. Now, to that end, I want to just toss into you real quickly. This is an insert into the insert of the message. So we haven't gotten there yet, okay? But here's what I want to share quickly with those of you that are young people here today that I've shared over the past and I want to bring back now. I want to suggest to you that there are only three decisions that you need to make in life, only three decisions that need to be done in sequence to be effective. The first decision is what will you do with God? That decision will shape everything else about who you are and what you become and what you do. What will you do with God? Will you reject him? Will you pursue him? Will you stand passive on the side? The next thing is, who are you going to marry? If, in fact, you marry and decide to do so, who will you marry? The third thing is then, what are you going to do with your life? What is going to be your calling? What is going to be the thing that you feel called to do and to be? Now, if you pursue God first and foremost, he will help you to decide who you marry. And then that person, they'll tell you what to do for the rest of your life. (laughs) Trust me. No, it's a shared issue. The other thing that I want to offer up to you today is this. I would read the book of Proverbs when I was young, one chapter a day. There are 31 chapters in Proverbs. It's a book of wisdom to instruct young people. And I would read a chapter a day, and a lot of that just soaks into you over time. And I offer to you only one today, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. My son or daughter, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Then this passage, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Steadfast love and faithfulness, another translation says love and loyalty. Another translation, loyalty and kindness. Loyalty and kindness are passe today, I know. We're more into harshness and arrogance and, and, and all that goes with us, but there's something about loyalty and love and kindness, and I would encourage you, wrap and hold that close to you regardless of what others do to you. Do not become unkind. Do not break faith and become disloyal. And let love guide you in this. And so you'll find favor, verse 4, and good success in the sight of God and man. And then finally this, trust in the Lord. This is where the key, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding or those of your own generation or even those of an older generation. Don't lean into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. He will guide you. Now, having said all that, I want to walk you into this idea of this king, this spirit of Rehoboam. 1 Kings chapter 12. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke you put on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and come back to me. So the people went away. Backstory real quick. Um, Rehoboam's 
father had been Solomon, and the previous generation was David. David was someone who had a deep relationship with God and a profound passion for the things of God. He wrote most of the Psalms. Solomon is the son that follows afterwards. Solomon is the wisest man that ever lived. And then here's Rehoboam. And Rehoboam comes along, and now he's king. And the people have come and said, look it, your, your dad had this great vision. And it was really cool, and we support it. But it meant a lot of taxation, a lot of hard work. And we're tired out, and honestly, we don't see you as having a great vision. Can we just lighten things up, and, and it'll all be good? Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father, Solomon, during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they'll always be your servants. But notice this, but Rehoboam in verse 8 rejected the advice the elders gave him. He tossed it out even before hearing anything else because it wasn't what he wanted to hear. He consulted the young men who'd grown up with him, his own generation, and were serving him, young men who were vying for his attention. This is called um, advice shopping. We, we ask, what do you think? But it's not what I want to hear. What do you think? No, that's not what I want to hear. What do you think? Oh, that's what I want to hear. I, that's what I want to do. And you just reinforce what I want to do. And evidently what he wanted to do is be a tough guy because these guys come along and says, what's your advice? How should we answer? These people say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us. The young men who'd grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter? Now tell them, my little finger's thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I'll make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Another thing says, I'll beat you with chains. You think my old man was tough? You ain't seen nothing yet, man. I am here to stay. And all the guys that were with him, yeah. So three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I'll make it even heavier. My father scourged you with us. I'll scourge you with scorpions. The result was predictable. Verse 16, when all Israel saw that the king had refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? In other words, of this dynasty. What part in Jesse's son, who was the father of David? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. And so the Israelites went home. And the kingdom was split and severed. And what Rehoboam ended up with was two out of 12 tribes. And it was shattered. There's an importance that I want you to understand, young people, whatever your age you want to identify with, there's an importance to listening to your elders. There's experience and perspectives that they have that you have not yet had. And you sit here and you condemn me for that. You say, oh, you're saying, listen to your elders. That's only because you are (coughs) an elder. First of all, I resent that, okay? But I would say this. This is something I also practiced when I was in my youth. We always wanted to be at the seat or the table of the adults. We were drawn. We wanted to know what they knew. I pursued elders. I looked for them. I wanted to understand what they knew. Nelson, Stram, their influences in my life. You need to pursue those that are older than you because there is something that they have to offer. And you should not discount that. Now, as I've said that and walked into this, I would offer to you at the same time a second king. In each of these, I want to offer a rebuke 
to a generation. But I also want to hold out hope to these generations as well. In this first one, we see Rehoboam, who typifies a generational attraction who listens only to what they want to hear and is not willing to share get outside of that. He was one also that didn't have any attention for God whatsoever. The second king I want to draw your attention to is um, a guy named King Josiah. And here's his backstory. His grandfather was a guy named Manasseh. And um, he came, uh, I think, to, to be king when he was like uh, 12 years old or something like that. And he was a really bad king. He was just horrible. He had all sorts of messed up stuff until finally things got so bad that, that God caught his attention. And Manasseh actually repented as he got older and drew the people back to God. He has a son named Ammon. And we find him here in Second Chronicles 33. Ammon was 22 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem two years. Notice that? How long did he reign? That's not long, guys. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord as his father Manasseh had done before he repented. Amnon worshiped and offered sacrifices to all the idols Manasseh had made. But unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Amnon increased, Amnon increased his guilt. So Amnon's officials conspired against him, assassinated him in his palace after two years. The people of the land, the people that killed all he plotted against him, they made Josiah his son king in his place. So Ammon is killed. And now we come to the second king, Josiah, Second Chronicles 34. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father, David, not turning aside to the right or left. Did you see what happened there? Who's his father? It's Ammon. Ammon. But he says here, it says he's going to follow instead. So his example was Ammon, who was just horrible. Maybe he remembers his grandfather Manasseh or was told stories of his grandfather Manasseh who failed and then came back to God and was restored again. But he goes back to David who had the most passionate relationship with God of anyone in his family structure in history. As an eight-year-old kid, something in him is stirred in such a way, maybe by the example of what he saw with the previous generation. Well, let's be honest, doesn't always get it right. And so he at eight years is old, he becomes king and he reigns. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or the left. He sought God. And in the eighth year of his reign, if he was eight years old when he started, he's now in the eighth year of his reign, little math quiz, how old is the kid? 16 years old. This is a 16-year-old kid. Eighth year of his reign, while he's still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Again, he's pursuing the one who he knows in his family background had a passionate understanding and relationship with God. Someone older than he was. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He began to cut to pieces the incense altars that were before them and smash the Asherah poles and the idols. And right now you're saying, saying we have no understanding of just what that means, Okay. So let's back that up a bit. All these were worships of pagan gods, but they were a specific type of worship. They were soaked in sensuality. Prostitution as a religious act was part of the worship process. As such, it was very popular with a lot of people, particularly the people of Josiah's own generation with their own passions and their own lusts. But when he comes to an understanding of God, he sets those things aside. You need to understand, he stood against his own generational group. Unlike Rehoboam, who sought it, he stood against it. 
in the 18th year of Josiah's reign, he goes to purify the land and the temple. So now he's 26 years old, and they're restoring the temple, the place of worship, back to God again. And in the process of the restoration, one of the priests finds the book of the law, basically their version of what they had of the Bible at that time. In other words, things that were this bad, they had lost the Bible. They had lost track of the word of God. And in cleaning things up, they find this book of the law. And, and, and when it's brought forward to Josiah, he reads it, he's like, wow, we're really in trouble because we're nowhere close to what this thing's saying we should be doing. And so he really implores to God on behalf of the people there. And as he draws into this, it says, as long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Josiah, unlike Rehoboam, sought advice and input sought from lives that had gone before him. He is a pursuer of God and drew so close and so tight into him that everyone else followed along with him. A few things to this. One, we need to be cautious with our own generation. Young people, be aware. The trends change all the time, but the word of God stays the same. Be cautious of your own generation. And then yes, number two, I would say, elders not always the answer but they do have experience. I am still learning myself from the generation beyond me. And yes, there is a generation beyond me. And I'm still learning from them. I think you also need to be inspired by those of your own generational mix who have stood for God when things have gotten tough. People like Esther and Mary and Ruth. People like David and, and Daniel and Josiah. Individuals who stood when everyone else was going the wrong way. But at the core of all of this is that you have your own relationship with God. That you yourself experience God. When I found out last fall that Bessie had died, it hit me. In my head, she's always 36. Larry Nelson's died, passed on. Bessie is gone. At some point in time in the future, I'll be gone too. Who will carry forward the work? Which of you will mentor the next generation? Those of you that are young now. We need you. You need us. You need the, the experiences, the understandings that, that we have. But we also need you. The knowledge you have to tell us how to change the ringtones on our phones. <laughs> and other really important stuff. No, you have experiences and perspectives that are fresh and new. We need an intergenerational expression to come together and to be a people. Don't lean into only your own generation. But you can't fully, completely, totally and alone depend on our generation. You need your own relationship with God. You need your own experiences with God. You need to seek the one who created you.
in a moment. The band's going to play a song for you that I've specifically asked to have played for you young people. It grabs me. I don't know if it'll grab you. I hope it does. Before they do that, I want to share with you some very personal stuff. When I was 16, I was working for a multinational corporation. McDonald's didn't pay much, (laughs) but it was a job. One night up in Flint, late night, a gang of guys came in and ordered some food and gave a 20 to our little cashier, and she gave the change back, and the leader of the gang said, "Um, oh, no, I gave you a 50. Uh, No, sir, you gave me a $20 bill. Here's your change. No, I gave you, sir, it was a, you don't understand, and he used a word I wouldn't use. It was a $50 bill, and I want my change. We could see what was starting, and we we knew pretty quickly they were going to jump the counter probably beat up whoever they could and take whatever money they could. And so we're grabbing items off the grill and other things here. And I'm sitting here and thinking, I'm going to die for a hamburger. <laughs> Fortunately, our manager, who's a little older and wiser, came over and he said, um, I took out the change. He said, here, sir, is the change from your $50 bill. Anything else we can help you with? And they swaggered on out. But I never forgot that, ever. What am I prepared to die for? What are you prepared to die for? A little later on, um, our youth group had done something they'd never done before. They went on a music tour. They took a bunch of us, and we formed kind of a choir, I guess, and we went to a couple of different churches. We took a week doing this up in Michigan. And one of the nights was at Teen Challenge in Muskegon. Teen Challenge is a place where um, people who have addictions uh, are struggling with different things. They go and it's a program to, to draw them into the things of God and the ways of God to overcome that stuff. Service was powerful. It was intense. And a lot of us were at the altars praying afterwards. Uh, forgive me. I know young people. I know sometimes you, you, you view emotion with suspicion, and I understand that, but I, I can't seem to get through this. I thought it would be easier second time. I remember sensing the presence of God so powerfully at the time. But I, I didn't want to be around people. I needed to get away, and so I stepped away from what was going on, and it continued on in the building. There was a field outside. Um, I don't know if it was a sports field or, or what. It was just an open field. And stars were out, and it was dark, and I could just feel God in a way I never felt him. And I, I started weeping in a way that I couldn't control. And I felt like for that moment of time, I was hearing God whisper that I was feeling his heartbeat, his, his deep passion for all his children of all generations that were lost and his great love for them. And, and uh, it just broke me. It shattered my world. And I finally knew what I was willing to die for. And um, I never forgot that moment. For me, ultimately, it was part of what took me into the area of ministry, and I realized that's what I was to do. And for some of you, maybe it's that. For others of you, it may be that you are to take your experience and your movement with God and understanding His heartbeat, and you're to become an incredible scientist 
and from that platform to show the grace of God like Larry Nelson did as a teacher or Bessie Strail. Perhaps you're to be a teacher. Perhaps you're to be a poet. Perhaps you're to be someone working on the line who influences people who struggle on a daily basis. But if you don't have that experience with God, if you've never felt the heartbeat of God, then you don't know how much he loves you. That he was willing to sacrifice everything for you. That he still stands and has a plan for you and a grace and a love for you. And if all you do is circle around with your own gang and, and you get caught up with the, with the arrogance and the blindness of that, that you never step away from that for a moment. To step out at night, to kneel by your bed, to take a walk, to kneel in prayer. If you never have that moment to hear God's voice and his grace and his passion for you, you will never find your place in this world, not fully and truly. And it'll never be settled. It's your life. It's your soul. What will you do with it? Will you be a Rehoboam, trapped in a cycle of arrogance and ignorance? Or will you be a Josiah? Even with a messed up family background, he managed to tap way back to the one who had passion and faith and establish something of himself that had him stand against all comers, even of his own time. This is what I pray for you today. This is what I I wanted to bring you to this place. I want to pray with you just for a minute. Father, I pray for our young people right now. I pray, Lord, that as they consider the things said here today, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would draw them into a moment with you. Lord, for this moment, I step away and I invite your Holy Spirit to speak. This is what the Lord would say to you today. I know it's a time of confusion. I know it's a time where a lot of weird things are going on and stress. But despite that, he says to the prophet Jeremiah, I have plans for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. He has a plan for you. For me, it was a field outside, a Teen Challenge in Muskegon. For you, it could be here this morning, tonight at your bedside, wherever it's at. But seek God. Seek to know him, to understand his character, to see how he operates. And in doing so, you will understand the world around you. We need you. You need us. We need each other. And all of us, I don't care what generation you are, we need God. And we need to pursue him. It's your life. It's your soul. There'll be those available up front to pray. And um, for some of you that are sitting back and thinking, oh, this is all about the young people, next week it's about the parenting age. Okay? Whether you have kids or not. So yeah, next week I'm coming after you.
And all the young people said, yeah, amen. There were some old voices saying that. There'll be prayer available afterwards up front for those who'd like to pray with someone, all right? Father God, we come before you, and I lift up to you this generation, this passionate, powerful generation, this confused and broken and hurt generation. And I pray, Lord God, that you would emphasize your grace to them, that as they seek your face, that they would find you and would be transformed in the finding. I commit them to you, Lord God. We love them. We love them. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, amen.